Welcome, everybody, to the new edition, the new interview podcast, part of my bloody podcast on iTunes and Spotify. So happy to be here in day 400,369 of this quarantine <laughs> lockdown. I'm Brian Kluger, and I'm joined by the host with the most, the guy I want to uh, I want to go to an abandoned house in the middle of nowhere and track people down with Mark Chaffardini. How are you, bud? I'm doing great. I got a battle plan already drawn up. I'm uh, got the caravan packed, ready to go. Excellent, excellent. <laughs> and we we're gonna have a very special show today. We've got two amazing filmmakers on the show today, Jonathan Malott and Carrie Murnian. Uh, we're just excited to have these these legendary intercontinental champion filmmakers are here. So we're going to discuss Becky, Cooties, and, and everything else. We're so excited. But first, guys, Jonathan and Carrie, how how are you doing in all in all of this? How, are y'all doing all right with the families? Y'all keeping keeping busy? Yeah, uh, we're we're holding in there. I think like everybody. Uh, this is John talking. Um, it's it's nuts. And uh, of course, uh, we're both uh, in the kind of center of the insanity. And in I'm in Brooklyn uh, and then Carrie's in L.A. So uh, really the kind of epicenter of, of all that's going nuts here in the world. Um, but we're staying safe and um, uh, praying, which is, uh, I guess, all well, well, it's the beginning of what we can all do right now. Right. No, that's, I think that's what all we can do. We're, we're both in Dallas, Texas, and uh, it's it's all interesting. But we're just glad that we have movies like yours, like Cooties, Bushwick, and Becky, to give us an escape. So uh, to, just to start out with you guys, um, for both of you, where did it all begin with you both in film? Was it something you watched when you were young? Was it a, a movie you saw? Was it something your parents showed you? Where did it all begin that spark, that passion for you in movies? Oh my God. Probably because we were losers and our <laughs> all we could do was watch movies. Um, I, you know, I used to love going to the, the, the VHS, you know, the, the video stores and, and just browsing the aisles um, so I think it went back to that. That was always just a special time to like to ask my mom, oh, can we go to the video store and, and, and just really, you know, finding that movie. Now it's, it's so easy to just scroll around Netflix and if you don't like it, you can try something else. Um, but, uh, I, I think it goes way back to there. But, uh, the funniest thing is we, we were just discussing this, uh, Carrie and I realized that we've, we met in, um, Parsons School of Design and one of the thir- first things we ever did together was go see um, a Michael Bay movie, and we kind of bond- <laughs> we bonded over The Rock, uh, which uh, which is a funny way to start a, a relationship that turned into uh, directing feature films. That's that's great. So everyone went home and fucked the prom queen. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> that's really good. So y'all met in design school. Yeah, Parsons School of Design. I mean, we were we were focusing on uh, animation and design, and when we got out of school, we we started a design uh, animation design studio, and um, yeah, that's kind of how we we started working together. That, that that's really cool. Is there was there a certain moment that you realized you both clicked, and it was over Michael Bay, and then you were like, okay, what cameras do we got to get? What do what was like? Was there a first script y'all kind of had an idea for? No, I mean, it was, it was, you know, speaking of dorky, it was way more dorky than that. I think we were in like typography 101 together and uh, we were giggling over Helvetica or something, you know, <laughs> way more dorky because uh, we came together more. Uh, we were doing zines and, 
you know, things like that back in the late nineties. Uh, and then when we first started our, our business, it was more about doing flash animations for, uh, uh, dot com bubble, you know, 1.0. Uh, so it goes way back, way back. And, um, you know, it was only after working together for a while that we started playing with animations that led to us, uh, figuring out, uh, that we really had a passion for film. Um, so over the course of a, a few years, you know, it, it was it wasn't it wasn't that immediate acknowledgement that we wanted to become filmmakers together. We just wanted to do creative stuff and 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 make stuff. And I guess with you doing uh, flash animation, you know, with like AOL 1.0 back in the late <laughs> 90s and getting into that, I guess technology is just constantly changing. Uh, I mean, how does that feel to y'all? Are y'all constantly on the top trends and going forward with all the animation? Do you still do that or is it strictly filmmaking now? Well, it's, it's cool because uh, one of the things we also just kind of realized the other day was that we were we were able to start our filmmaking because of the, the technology of the time, which was just those DV cameras. Um, but it was the beginning of, you know, you didn't have to buy a roll of film, uh, get, you know, people that really knew how to work the camera and then develop it and have all that, that money. You could just get a DV camera and go out and shoot your ideas. Um, so that was, oh, I'm getting some crackling. Sorry. Uh, so that was it. You know, it was like nowadays you can just grab your iPhone and go out and shoot. And um, we were we're thinking that it's, you know, doing a feature film with an iPhone is is a challenge. Um, it's doable. But really, the cool thing is that, you know, starting with those DV cameras, you really can um, start fine tuning and honing your craft and exploring ways to tell stories with a camera. Um, and that's pretty much what we did. Um, all the way up into our last film, where we were one of the first productions to do a feature film with the Alexa Mini, which is, you know, the smaller, uh, smaller version of the, the, the cameras that they offer, um, especially at the time, it was brand new. So then that enabled us to use the Movi, which was also something relatively new um, when we were filming Bushwick. And we did the we were one of the first productions that used the Movi and the Mini on the whole film, every shot because we were doing these long, long takes um, with the camera just going wherever we wanted it to go and making cameramen uh, leap over fences and around things and uh, up the side of buildings and handing it off and going into the, the building and just doing really crazy uh, things that um, hopefully seem seamless when you're watching it, but were pretty, pretty wild. We, we know that um, Sam Mendes watched Bushwick and was like, we need to we need to do something different than those guys because <laughs> for 1917 <laughs> yeah that, uh, that that makes sense and i'm just glad as you could tell from the intro i'm a big pro wrestling fan so working with batista and B bushwick was pretty pretty badass yeah that was kind of a dream come true and um was uh you know something we just obviously with kevin james and this is we we love the idea of taking actors who have kind of become known for a specific thing and then really subverting that and flipping it on its head. Um, at the time, Batista was mostly known for wrestling. Um, and he had done and Drax. Drax and wrestling. So that was like, that was what people knew him for. And so the, to think of him as, as, a, as the lead of a movie and being serious and quiet and, and kind of, uh, and vulnerable, like for, for Batista to be vulnerable in something was, a big step for you know, him and for anyone who kind of knew about him. So that's where it was, it was really, um, 
interesting for us to work with him on that way. And it was something that he really wanted to do for his character was to explore things that he hadn't been able to do before. Um, this was his leading man role. It was basically his first time that he led a, led a movie. And uh, it, was, it was ways for us to kind of do things like that with him. Very cool. And, and it also helped his turn in Bushwick, actually, because, you know, you expect somebody of Bautista's charisma and character to, well, spoilers being what they are, what happens to him is not what people would expect seeing <laughs> Bautista's <laughs> name on the poster. So that's another way that you, like you said, you subverted expectations. Yeah, we wanted we wanted him to um, to and to, to use his size in a in a unique way. Um, he was, we felt like the whole time during Bushwick, he was almost trying to like to hide how big he was purposely. Like to, he he didn't want to be put in the situation. He wasn't an action hero who's going in to kick some butt and like and purposely go into to do this he actually wanted to get away from all this so it was this big guy who was trying to to get away and to hide and that and only when he was confronted with things did he did he have to push through and and make and kind of become the hero and that was that was again like using that size to our advantage to to kind of subvert what you think of him now one of the things about bushwick which i'm kind of glad we segued into that um was the intention always to have the movie feel like a single take and you just mentioned the difficulties trying to pull that off. Did you ever stop halfway through and go, what did we get ourselves into? Uh, yeah. I mean, we, uh, it was an idea that we had. Uh, I mean, we started working on the idea of Bushwick back in 2012, I think. Uh, 2012 was before Cooties, actually. Um, and it, it was something, you know, we, we both lived in Brooklyn. Um, we both been through 9-11, and we, we kind of wanted to express ourselves, like, what would happen if, if our city was invaded, um, and so we felt like um, doing a one, doing it as like a one take would would put the the audience in our shoes uh, and and show the experience of what what that that kind of fear would be. So we we worked on the script as uh, as a one take. Um, you know, there are a few um, there are a few specific hard cuts in the film, and we also, we actually also cut up. Um, into a helicopter shot um, part way through the film, so we we didn't feel like we needed to try to um, to fake fake people into thinking it was all just one take. We used the the, the long takes what we felt were kind of these these moments that would put you through and then give you a respite when we do these hard cuts. But yeah, it was something that um we felt like it was it was a it was a unique way to show that experience and show that we're actually we're doing it in Brooklyn. You know, we really went through the back alleys of these buildings we planned the whole thing out with a with these five blocks in mind um, we got you know got approval from people to go down into their basements into the churches into into the apartment buildings and uh it was like a way for us to kind of explore that area and and be as, as authentic as possible and not feel like we're you know we're filming this um you know kind of thing in, in detroit to look like to look like brooklyn like we were actually in brooklyn uh showing all this happen and that that one take made it feel that way and the crazy thing was that um, usually as you're developing movies, you kind of do things like a, a wish list, like this is the best case scenario. We're going to get so-and-so actor or we're going to shoot here. Um, and one of those things that we did was uh, Kerry, who lived in that area, did a map. He did an actual visual map taking, you know, Google, uh, Google Maps and just wrote the, the path of the whole story in terms of like our, our dream scenario. And we're like, there's no way this will ever happen because there's no way we, we'll get, you know, all the, the locations and signed off. And in the end, 
uh, it almost exactly yeah. like the, the original map that he drew, we were able to follow that path, which is this kind of circle around um, uh, Bushwick area. And uh, so, yeah, it was really cool to actually film in, in that location. That, that, that's amazing. I, and, and speaking of, of that, I mean, it sounds like you were dealing with new cameras, so there's a learning curve right there. Trying to do this, you know, trying to get your wish list map was a learning curve, but you also worked with Aesop Rock. I, I interviewed him mm-hmm. about his score on the film, and that was his first film score, and that was a learning mm-hmm. curve. So did, did you guys all feed off each other? I mean, how did you kind of encourage each other for these new endeavors you were taking? Yeah, I mean, that was definitely part of the 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 appeal of, of that kind of project, of doing new new things the whole time. And everyone involved was just excited to pull us off. Um, you know, our, our uh, assistant director, Urs uh, Hersfeld, it, he's, he's worked on a lot of big movies. He also worked um, uh, with uh, uh, Jean, um, the guy who did Sharp Objects, uh, um, forgetting his name right now, but he worked on, on his TV shows. And this was the one of the most exciting things that Urs had ever done. And so it was something that we all just felt like, let's go in, let's try it. Uh, we planned the hell out of it. You know, we, as John said, we did maps. You know, John and I for months would walk through the this uh, through through the um, the neighborhoods and kind of plan things out. We had a week and a half with uh, with with Dave Bautista and Brittany Snow, where we did um did kind of very dry run-throughs with just us, uh, them, and our and Lyle Vincent, the DP, and our operator. Frank to kind of go through the motions of the camera. And so then we actually got on set. We're like, this is it. This is, we're doing a live play on the streets of Brooklyn in an action movie. Uh, And also the other thing was that we only had 18 days to film it all. Um, Yeah, usually an indie film, usually it's like around 25 days is kind of like the the kind of like the norm. Um, But because of, we had this a week and a half of rehearsals, we kind of, we want we really needed that and um, we're able to kind of make it work um, you know with the way that we're filming it where we didn't have to do multiple angles of things so we planned the heck out of it and then shot it almost in kind of felt like real time of like making this all happen that way that that's awesome and you know New Yorkers are usually indifferent to a lot of things where do they just not care about explosions and filming at this point do they just look the other way or do you need crowd control it was funny. It was like a, definitely a mix of both. I mean, there was a, we, you know, we would um, we put out flyers all around the neighborhood, um, you know, before we were doing anything because it was at a at a moment where um, there was some terrorism things going on. Especially there was a that was when um, the Bacalon uh, thing happened in Paris when there was a terrorist attack there. So uh, now when you see these images in Paris of of soldiers in black. Um, you know, military outfits kind of going around the streets of, of Paris. And so we wanted to make sure that people, you know, weren't scared like that because we had the same thing. We were, we had these guys in black outfits going around the streets of Brooklyn. So we, we, we canvassed the whole neighborhood with, with flyers saying, look, we're filming, don't worry. But still, you know that no one else, no one read those things. And it was funny to kind of watch where we would be setting up this whole scene, have a police car flying down the street, you know, guys with fake guns in the streets. And you see, a, you know, someone in, uh, in their apartment building looking out the window, very nonchalantly looking down on us and not really caring. I mean, this, of course, there's cameras around. So I think it wasn't, you know, it was pretty apparent we were, a, we were a film crew. But still, it was, it was, uh, it was, it was kind of fun to see how, how Brooklyn, Brooklyners were just like, were, were able to adapt pretty quickly. And then in the final scene, um, we do a big uh, battle scene where we go through a park and it's in the middle of the night um 
and we had real mortars going off. Uh, those, you know, there was some enhancement with some VFX, but a lot of that was practical. And we were filming pretty much from, you know, 10 o'clock at night till about four or five in the morning till the light came up. And we were like blowing stuff up and we never heard a complaint. I mean, I think, you know, again, we had a really good crew who was you know, making sure to talk to the community and make sure they were, you know, things are going on. But um, people were just really nice. And I think people also knew what our goal was, was in the movie, that we were kind of uh, showing the, the fortitude of people in Brooklyn and, and people kind of come together to fight back against people invading them. So they actually kind of were, were psyched that we were showing that off their neighborhood that way. Oh, one of my one of my favorite memories, though, of the, of the <laughs> filming is uh, uh, Dave is uh, Dave is the nicest guy. He's this big, you know, muscular dude who's just, you know, pretty quiet, but just nice. He's giving, you know, I, I can't say that enough because this one memory was the one time I think we, we almost broke him was we were you know doing this scene where a long take. So you got to you got to like run for five minutes straight. And we were doing a few takes of this. And it started with him like running out of a, a building and smashing into the side of a car, then, you know, shooting at people, then running into the side of something else and running and running and running. And at one point, there's just some Brooklynite walking down the street, you know, had walked through all the PAs that we're, we're holding. And, you know, so it's like you can't have an action scene with someone just strolling down, going going to the office. And I think that was the one time that quiet, you know, nice Dave was just like, what the hell is going on? And he kind of lost it. But, um, you know, that was the, the only time we ever saw that him uh, him lose it a little tiny bit. That's that's a that's a great story. I can picture his his wrestling character coming out yelling about that. <laughs> yeah. That's really good. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let let's talk let's talk about Becky and holy shit, guys! I I this was like my fantasy movie screening to watch this uh, that I wish at Fantastic Fest in Austin with a theater full of people because there's just nonstop cheers in this movie for me even from my house uh. um, and you know when I've talked to people about it since I've watched it they're like they kind of look it up and like what's this and I was like it is a highly energetic and entertaining. Uh, best versions of Rambo, Home Alone, and I Spit on Your Grave with a swastika <laughs> tattooed Kevin James. And it just is nonstop badass. And I just want to uh, give you guys kudos for doing this because I don't think like we've had like some comedian comedians like Joe McHale or Kevin James do something like this. And it just works so well. And so my question is, how do you, how did y'all walk that fine line of the, the co little comedy aspect with the all seriousness of it, because there is uh, some bo both sides to it in this film. Oh, thanks. That, that's awesome to hear. And I think that's like the key point here is that we made this movie because we love this type of movie. You know, we love revenge thrillers. Um, we love cinematic violence. And, you know, hopefully we've made it for people like you and people that can really appreciate that and uh, appreciate it for what it is. Um, but I think that was a, a tough part to to walk is is we wanted it to, to be fun we wanted you to be able it'll just kind of sit back and let it wash over you um you you know kind of shock you in a few places um so you know finding that that kind of balance is uh is was one of the big challenges of directing it is making sure that it just doesn't become so ridiculous that you don't care at all about the characters you don't believe that the characters would be doing 
any of this, um, but also still keeping it just fun and, and playful. Um, so yeah, it, it is definitely a, a fine line. And, and with that, I'm so happy and I'm, if I correct me if I'm wrong, but it looked like all practical gore effects, which I'm just a huge fan of. Definitely. We, yeah. We worked really hard to try to make it all practical gore. I think there's a few places that might have a little bit of augmentation, but you know, really it's, it's, it's practical blood. Um, we had a great, uh, special effects makeup team that we had some real kind of insane ideas of, of things we wanted some tendons and some anatomical parts cut in half and uh, all those things you kind of dream of and then present and usually get kind of weird looks and stares and um, our team just was able to implement most of them and it's so important on set to ha have those elements to interact with when uh the characters are trying to cut a uh, tendon. Uh, it, it's just important to be able to actually interact with it. That's actually another funny, uh, funny memory from the shooting of that was um, working with Kevin, who who's also uh, he's just hilarious. Obviously, he's he's known for being a comedian. But um, so one of the one of the scenes, he has to do this surgery on himself. I won't explain everything. No. <laughs> no, that that scene is so goddamn good in oh, so many ways. <laughs> There's you, like yeah. layers to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a really fun scene to shoot. But uh, what happened was we were on set and we were doing a bunch of takes, and um, he, he has to do this self surgery to uh, to uh, yeah to himself. And um, so we had this thing where he had to cut through a tendon, um, and it was practical. And of course, we have to use a, a knife that's dulled, so it's safe. And so he's trying to do this surgery on a tendon that's supposed to kind of break away, and it won't break away. So he's sitting there. We've done like ten takes, and and he's trying to cut away, and he's sawing, and he's chopping, and he's doing all these ridiculous things to to get through this tendon, and it just won't break. And he's screaming and grunting, and you know, Kevin's like a, a real physical guy. You know, you know, in actuality, he's like really intense. So he's groaning, and it just keeps going on and on and and this is the type of moment where as a director you're like do i yell t cut to 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 make sure he's okay do i let it keep going and then it's going on so long that everybody's kind of you see the the whole crew and including myself like stifling giggling back because it's just so funny and it goes on and on finally he gets through it he does like a chop and he gets through the the tendon and he keeps going, you know, because the scene isn't over when he does that. So he has to kind of bark out an order and uh, throw a chunk of uh, his own flesh. And uh, he keeps going, finishes the scene. And then we yell cut and everybody just unloaded with laughter, including him. And uh, it was kind of a relief because we weren't actually sure if he was frustrated and pissed off that the, the, the tendon wasn't cutting. But it was it was an awesome moment. I, I really hope you put these outtakes and extended <laughs> scenes on a Blu-ray 4K in the future, please, because I feel <laughs> like that's going to be amazing. Oh, that'll be <laughs> fun. That'll be fun. That'll be fun. Yeah. Um, and, you know, with uh, the actress Lulu Wilson, who plays the title character, Becky, you know, she's been in some great stuff like a horror aspect, Ouija and Annabelle in The Haunting of Hill House. How did she come aboard? Because she's, I mean... She's pretty awesome in this movie. Her her transformation, I should say, is pretty great. How'd you find her? 
Oh yeah, she is amazing. We've been fans of hers for a while. We we first saw her when she was pretty pretty young, and and uh, one, the Ouija sequel, uh, which is so great. Um, and even at a young age, she just blew our minds with the level of intensity that she brought to the role, um, which is just rare with kid actors. She really just did something that w- just caught our eye. So we were following her career, and you know we saw her in Annabelle creation, and then and sharp objects and the haunting of hill house um and just really mature uh psychologically mature horror movies um so we kind of always knew it was her um and if we were going to have a a a movie based around a 13 year old it had to be someone of her talent of her maturity and skill and um yeah we were just lucky right from the start she she read the script and was was into it and um you know, it's a, it's one thing to watch it in a movie and there's another thing to see it on set. And, you know, right from the first first kind of intense day of shooting with her, uh, she let out a scream um, that just pretty much shut everybody up on set. You know, everybody kind of stopped what they were doing and looked and said, wow, this is uh, this is a real intense little girl. And uh, we're kind of going to have to, to step up to her level to, to make this that's really special. So yeah, she's, she's awesome. As, as an actor, she has, you know, d- dramatic range. And, and one of the reasons that Brian and I like this movie so much, it feels like this is right in line with the type of film you would see at Fantastic Fest. And Lulu um, was in a movie called Worm, which we um, saw at Fantastic Fest, which showed a different kind of side to her. But she has this sort of cooler than you, but still vulnerable aspect to her, her, her delivery, which is so great. But I also noticed a uh, little eagle-eyeing in the end credits. Um, Jonathan, you did the main titles, and Lulu and your kids did illustrations for those <laughs> the Becky art artistry. Can you talk about that? Oh, my God, yeah. Lulu is definitely one of those people that you're just like, come on, really, you're, you're, you're – you're smart, you're talented, you're grounded, you have a great family. Um, and it's just like at every turn, she's a great singer. She's, um, you know, and an artist, you know, so it's like, of course, she's just doodling away on set. Um, and, uh, you know, throughout the film, there's, uh, there's elements where you see her, you know, in the, in the classroom, she's doodling, those are her doodles. She's drawing in the, um, her, her fort, and those are her drawings. Um, so yeah, when we were doing the, the, excuse me we were doing the um thank you we were doing the titles um it was something that uh i was working with my kids just to kind of explore more doodles and 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 build out that world of her in the in that classroom kind of you know not really doing the tests she should be doing maybe ignoring the teacher um and just kind of in her own world um that yeah we we i started working with my kids and then uh asked her to do some sketches and a lot of those weird kind of clown creatures sketches and just a bunch of the other doodles are, are Lulu's and uh, across the board. Uh, another, another kind of crazy thing was that her family's so giving that we did some pickup shoots at her house. Um, Lulu, uh, Becky's mom in the film is actually Lulu's mom. You know, when we see her, uh, the flashbacks with her, um, you know, her sick mom, that's actually Lulu's mom, you know, so the, her family is just so cool. So giving, you know, let us, letting us shoot at their house. Um, 
you know, just, just real awesome across the board. Like I said, she's just, um, every time you turn, there's something new to discover from her. Well, that's also cool because, uh, you know, the, the artistry of the, the film speaks for itself. And this, this might be going back to, uh, to Bushwick, but I like in the beginning of the movie, you have these parallel sequences where Joel McHale is breaking Lulu out of school. And he says, you know why I broke you out of uh, I might be paraphrasing, but then you're also seeing in comparison the parallel journeys of Kevin James and character who plays Apex. And I just love the transitions and even the part where Lulu faces off against Kevin James by the way you pan the camera. Um, can can you speak to some of those digital wizardry uh, tricks that you might have done? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, one of the things when we first started working with uh, Greta, our cinematographer, was we really wanted this idea of, of telling the story through the perspective of Becky. Uh, we wanted a, a really definitive uh, point of view of a 13-year-old girl. So in a way, we almost talk about it as if it was like, uh, if Becky had narrated this and she was an unreliable narrator, um, you'd get these, these kind of splashes of really um, emotional and kind of surreal uh, visuals. Um, in the end, we didn't ever go with like a VO and her being an unreliable narrator, but we still wanted that idea and that that dis distinct perspective. Um, so that led us into doing things like that, where you're blending, you know, b the blending between the school and the prison and, and as if that's, you know, like a, a, looking at it from that young age, you wouldn't really be able to tell the differences or you would notice those differences because you're in it so much um, all the way through to, you know, some of the conflicts. Um, but, yeah, a lot of that took a lot of planning. Hopefully it comes across as um, kind of it just flows. But, uh, yeah, it takes a lot from the script stage all the way to the execution, um, you know, from storyboarding and planning. And, of course, a lot of times you're filming you know, like in one location one day and then four weeks later in another day. So you really need to know, did, is the camera moving in this direction? Um, and is it going to match cut with um, this element? And uh, you have to precisely plan the first part. So when you're in that second location, you can um, combine both of those elements. Um, so, yeah, it takes it, took, it takes a lot of work to, to not just shoot, to just, you know, to really plan and make sure those elements come together. Well, I'd say I, from the audience perspective that uh, it does work, and it's, it's a way to get the exposition and more more than it just being a boring travel log. I, I, it was a nice little hook that you had there, so good job. Oh, thank you. And there's some, there's some just great images that I wish I had um, on my wall, such as the the fight in front of the headlights, or even Becky sitting singing in front of the campfire with her blood running down her nose and face and just with the fire in the foreground i think those shots are so good is that something y'all just kind of came up with on the spot or is that something you had in mind to do because they're really haunting and still i'm thinking about them you know days later about that oh that's awesome to hear yeah you know th this is i think this is a great example of of, of working with a great cinematographer and and how they can bring so much to the table because, um, so, you know, like we were discussing those planning of those shots coming together takes a lot of planning, but you can plan to have uh, a character in front of headlights, but 
only with the the way that the cinematographer lights it and the filters they can bring to it and the lenses do you get those awesome lens flares and just the the impact of of those moments where um sure you can draw a storyboard of her sitting behind a fire but not until that um you know there uh, i think greta used a streak filter um do you get these really cool interactions with the lenses that um just really intensify and enhance the the emotion of the scene um so i think yeah that's just a great example that yeah it was a little bit of planning but really taken to another level by uh what greta brought to it no i thought that was great and then now i have to talk about since we're talking about pro wrestling uh, you had dave batiste and bushwick but now you have the great robert uh i think i'm pronouncing his name right malay who is a pro wrestler and there were definitely pro wrestling moves in this movie i literally yelled at the top of my lungs at midnight choke slam <laughs> and i'm just really excited about this <laughs> so how did you come across robert because i know he trained under bret hart and everything and uh i think uh, he's dealt with kim Sh ken shamrock and it just i loved his character by the way and his his journey but I also loved his physicality, and there were definitely wrestling moves in here, which I loved. So can you talk a little bit about getting him and how he was on set? And are you guys fans of wrestling since you've worked with them? Oh, man. Yeah, he is. He is amazing because he yeah, he's almost seven or he's over seven feet tall. He's just uh, he's just a real life giant. Uh, so um, that was written in the script. Uh, you need to have, you know, we needed to have somebody that was just so physically imposing that you just knew there was no way in hell that a 13 year old girl was going to be able to overpower him or, or anything remotely um, on a physical level. So that was written in the script. So when you're casting someone like that, you're limited to a very small number of people that are above six, five. Um, and in fact, a lot of those dudes are wrestlers. And so in turn, you have these guys that are used to playing thugs. You know, a lot of times they don't, their characters aren't written out because they just play the, the kind of meathead thug. Um, whereas we think the, the, the role apex that, that Robert plays is actually one of the most interesting arcs in the film because he is kind of morally, uh, questioning what's going on almost more so than anyone else. Um, so uh, as we began the search for that actor, uh, we kept talking to guys that physically were really perfect for the role, but had that almost uh, wrestling mentality in the performance. Uh, obviously, when it comes to the physicality, you, you want that. You want those wrestling moves, but you don't want someone that at every point is going to be kind of overemphasizing um, moments that are smaller and, and should be a little bit more internalized. Um, so we're talking to all these guys and they're all kind of big and we would try to direct them in the, in the conversation, the kind of quote unquote, uh, uh, rehear not rehearsal, but, um, you know, as we're looking for the role and they, it was just hard. We were, we found some people that were close, but it was a lot of work. And finally we got to, to Robert and he was just so understated. Um, and we gave him a little tiny bit of direction and he just really found that, that perfect amount of, uh, kind of quiet, uh, beautiful, uh, understated performance. And so it pretty much right away, the minute we talked to him, we knew he was perfect. Um, and I think he really took that to the role at, at the same time, he could just pick up the stunt person, cook up, pick up Lulu and just kind of like hold him up in the air. You know, we would be like, 
okay, you, this is going to be the one with the stunt person. We'll put up the pads and you pick up the, the, the stunt double and just throw her to the ground. Okay, no problem. Okay, this is the one with Lulu where we're just going to get you picking her up, but please don't slam her. So he would just pick her up and <laughs> hold her up in the air like you would hold up like a laptop. I mean, it was just like nothing to him. So um, across the board, he was, he, he was the, the, the brute physicality and the kind of quiet, awesome, emotional as well. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. And are you guys fans of wrestling at all? You know what? It's funny. I, I, I'm actually a huge UFC fan. Uh, okay. Which is weird because I've never done anything like that. And, and you know, kind of like I said before, I was watching uh, videos while I was growing up, not doing anything super physical. Um, so um, for some reason, no, I never got into W, uh, you know, the, the rest, watching the wrestling. But yeah, I do like the, the watching UFC for some reason. No, they're, um, they're both I mean, good. And I think the farthest I went was the WrestleManias. I think into high school was where it was like Undertaker and um, the war, uh, the war- Warrior, and is it the Warrior? Ultimate Warrior. Ultimate I think Warrior. that was kind of the uh, that was when um, I stopped. So I think it was around like mid nineties. Um, and I think I feel like I want to sort of get back into it because I feel like I have a different appreciation appreciation for it now because there was that time where. Um, when it was like, um, it almost like broke the seal. I feel like because for a while I thought, oh, this is real. Like wrestling's real. It's it's not planned out. And then when I found out there was a little bit, there was a, kind of a script to it. I felt almost betrayed. But now I, I appreciate that even more. I, I appreciate how theatrical um, it is and how hard it is to pull these kind of those kind of like things off. And even on like how great each uh, each of the wrestlers are to be able to riff for as long as they do and to keep a storyline going. Um, and it's like a live, you know, again, a live movie that goes over, you know, months. Um, so I, I kind of like want to get back into it a little bit and, and, and see how, see if I'd appreciate, if I'd like it more um, now that I kind of know how these things are made. Right. So I would definitely have you start out with a recent pay-per-view it was Undertaker versus AJ Styles. And they filmed it like a movie because yeah. they couldn't do it in live in a live format. So they filmed it like a movie yeah. Yeah, in a graveyard. It was the boneyard yes. match. And it was <laughs> that's wonderful. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. People are saying so that, think, like, that's kind of because of the COVID, right? That they did it because yeah. there's no audience, right? That people are saying that's a cool way to maybe keep on doing that. Correct. Yeah. And they've been doing that and it's been pretty good. So I think you'll like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think I'm going to try it out. That's the weird thing. You know, some of the UFCs have been without an audience, which is, is pretty weird. I mean, it's cool because you really hear the, the, the sounds that you don't normally hear because the crowd is, is um, blocking out. Is that, is it weird not hearing the crowd with the wrestling? Yeah. So I guess when watching raw, they, it's, very strange not to hear um, like the boos and the cheers or the chants because then you can actually hear the wrestlers kind of like say their moves a little bit. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's really strange. But now uh, they are actually having some of the wrestlers and people in back come out to the audience and kind of cheer and boo people. So it kind of uh-huh. it's a little better. Uh because, you know, I think part of going to a fun film or going to a live venue like that and watching something, an audience is a big part of it. So um, and it adds to it. Yeah. And I think, you know, watching this, like we've, we've mentioned Fantastic Fest before in Austin and this movie, Becky, is just 
it's ripe for this audience. I just know that it would have been so great to watch this, even if it was at midnight. Everybody would be up in arms and like, yeah, it was great. Mm. And just come out with a new life type of thing. But no, it's great. Yeah. It's great. Um, do you guys know that? Um, do you guys know that this? Uh, we have we're going to be playing in almost like fifty drive-ins around the country. That's great. Yeah, the closest one to Dallas, I guess it's about forty-five minutes south of here, and I would love to see this at the. So this is a, this is a perfect drive-in movie, I think. It really is. Yeah, it was something that we really pushed for, and I think it's. I think it'll be one of those ones that people will appreciate because these, you know, when we were younger, we saw. Um, kind of thrillers like this and it it really made an impression on us in that kind of setting and having the the sun kind of go down and it get dark and then this these kind of intense movies to play it, it'll, it'll be fun to people to see this way that's good uh can i talk a little bit about kevin james with you guys please of course yeah. um so if you've ever seen the making documentary of the shining by stanley kubrick there is a certain scene in the making of behind the scenes where uh, Jack Nicholson playing Jack Torrance is revving up with his axe to get in character. Did Kevin James do anything similar to that while getting into this, you know, crazy character that he plays that he's not used to? Was he like, you know, getting vicious on set and like pumping himself up or anything like that? <laughs> That's so funny. Oh, man, I'm trying to think. I, you know, I, it was almost the opposite. There was times where the, the if he was not on camera, he was doing shit that just made us laugh. And it really, at, at some points, it was not fair because, you know, we're, we're focusing, as directors, we're focusing on the actors that are on camera. And you turn around and, like, Kevin is just doing something right off camera. He knows exactly where the line is. And he can he's, like, kind of poking his head around the corner and cracking us up. And it's like, Kevin, stop that. Amanda Bruegel is crying right now. And you're trying to crack us up. So it's like... Oh my God! Yeah, so he's just so so much fun. I don't know, Carrie. Do you remember? Did he do anything in the, especially the intense scenes? I think he would just. Uh, I know that he had a um, he had two close friends that he that he had kind of was there with him, and I know that like specifically for you know the the scenes around the fire and then the scenes with Amanda, they would kind of go off in the corner and they would go. They kind of run through things, um, and you could see that Kevin was kind of getting more into character. Um, I think he'd also. You know, he put he put on his red sweatshirt um, and kind of get into that mode. So I th it was a way for him to, with, his, with his two close friends to kind of run through things a little bit and and just kind of clear out his mind uh, before he got into these uh, intense scenes. That's just great to hear that he's still joking behind the camera as you're trying to shoot takes in this crazy this crazy movie. Yeah, mm -hmm. but he also was um, like Robert was really. Uh, just down to do anything and to the point where like him and Joel we had to be like okay you know yes let's uh, have you in involved as much in the fighting uh, fight scenes as possible you know we can have a, a safety we can do it with a safety pad behind you so when the stunt person kicks you in the chest you fall onto the safety pad um, but there were moments where you know they wanted to light themselves on fire and do things that is like no no we got we got stunt people for that too because you know the last thing we need is you going up in flames and and us losing you so they were um you know joel McHale. there were moments where he was lying face down in the dirt and that could easily have been a, a stunt double uh, taking his place because his face is literally in the mud um but joel was more than willing to jump on the ground and just lie there you know and and just give the other actors that those moments where um 
you know, it was really him. So it, it, you got to give them a lot of props. Another story about Joel is that um, there's a scene where uh, something should be is kind of like stuck into him, and there's supposed to be the kind of this, this fire um, that, that come off the off the flames, and and uh, you know, like we thought, you know, we, we want to make sure that that Joel is safe and there's no fire on him. Well, he's like he says, so he's like, well, you know, I could what I could do is light my shirt on fire for like a few seconds, and then I could put it out real quickly. And we kind of look <laughs> around and we're like, I guess we can. You know, let's try it. And he, and it was kind of something we did real quickly. I mean, like we looked at looked at looked at Greta. We said, "Can we roll the camera?" She r- rolled the camera. He he lit his shirt on fire for a few seconds, and <laughs> we got the shot. And then he put it out real quickly. And then it was done. It was like, okay, got got the fire shot on on Joel. <laughs> and and uh, that was before, like, we did it so quickly, and he he actually did it so quickly. It was before the AD and the fire safety people and everybody came running over like, what the hell are you doing? You just can't be doing that. And uh, it was, you know, sometimes you just get, um, you know, caught up in the moment of trying to make it as best it can be. And um, that's why you have all the safety people there to make sure that you you don't cross a line um, and become unsafe. But, yeah, we were we're always very safe. But he was he was willing to to push the push the limits. Joel wants to be a stuntman now. I like that. He does. He does. <laughs> you know, well, you from know, a gore. Fam- he's famous. He's famous for the you know the paintball episode in the community. I think he wants to be an action star. He wants to. He wants to do some things, and he will be. I know he's gonna. He's gonna be. He's gonna be one of the next action stars as it, as uh, things develop in his career for sure. Wonderful. And just as a small note to that was that we were lucky. We did get Robert because he's Robert's. You know, seven feet tall, and Joel is like six five and super buff. So if we had just gotten like a six foot three, you know. Uh, character to play Apex, he would have actually been smaller than the dad, and that just <laughs> the whole movie wouldn't have worked. So, um, yeah, Joel is a big guy. That's funny. Well, you know, from a gore perspective, um, this movie goes for the throat, no pun intended. But as Brian said earlier, it walks the line between co- uh, horror and comedy. But one of the mo- one of the moments that really kind of struck me is when. Apex punches Diego, and it reminded me of Blazing Saddles, where Mungo punches a horse. So (laughs) did you guys get to put any scenes from movies that you loved growing up into the movie, and were there any scenes that turned out the opposite of what the intention was, where it was supposed to be funny, it became horrific, or vice versa? Um, You know, I think... There's definitely, you know, I can, we can actually, we can reference very specifically a scene that you actually already referenced is that there's um, this really cool French film called Let the Corpses Tan. I don't know yes. if you've seen it. Yeah, oh, I've definitely seen that. Yeah, that's, that's one of our favorite uh, movies over the last few years. It's just so visual and unlike anything you've seen. So, uh, you know, I don't know who said the thing of uh, uh, stealing. <laughs> stealing is the best uh, uh, compliment, but we can definitively say we stole that uh, kind of idea of um, w- there's a moment when Becky and, uh, uh, you know, Kevin James' character are talking on a walkie-talkie and the, the camera pans one way and then pans across and then you're in a new location and you keep kind of getting closer and closer and pushing in until they're in the same frame and their heads are, you know, their eyeballs are almost touching um, that was something that we um, really just uh, pretty much lifted from that that movie um, 
you know, hopefully we're, we're using it and it, you know, it's, it would be like t saying, you all, I saw a close up in some movie. So now, uh, you know, I stole that close up, but it's definitely a technique and, uh, hopefully we used it, um, in the right way. Um, but we definitely want to give that film credit and I think everybody should, should rush out and see it if possible. Um, but I think in terms of, I think maybe at one point we actually did have a lot more comedy, uh, with Becky's character um, and she was really snarky. And I think what happened was we, we, in a few cases, we got her to say a few things. Uh, I'll give you an example was, um, there's a, a key moment, <laughs> uh, literally, <laughs> literally talking where, uh, Becky uses the key to lash out at, um, at uh, Kevin James's character. And right before he, she, she says that, you know, she, he says, you know, Becky, where's the key? And she, re she responds in the film. She says right here. And it kind of attacks him. Um, it was scripted in two ways. We had right here, and there was also, you, you know, because they're face to face. She says something like, "Your breath smells like farts." <laughs> and, and so, <laughs> in, in the script phase, you're thinking that's hilarious. That's the kind of like crazy, uh, you know, childhood attitude that we want Becky to have. That she's, you know, she's so kind of just like in the moment that she, you know she smells this dude's breath and he's like this old dude and she says it right to his face and then you know lashes out at him. Um, so in the script phase, that's cool and could be a great character moment and a funny moment that kind of lends itself to the overall, you know, that back and forth tone of, of humor versus violence. Um, but it, in the actual editing of the film, when we're putting that in, it does come after a really emotional, intense moment, and it just seemed to be too quick. So that was a moment where it was like, well, let, you know, let's go with the, the less kind of quote unquote humorous, humorous way um, and go a little bit more straightforward. Because if we just jump right into the humor right there, it would just really diminish all the, um, the emotional stuff that happened right before it. Gotcha. Kind of reminds me of when uh, Chunk and Sloth <laughs> meet sort of for the first time. He's like, oh, man, you smell like fizzed. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Uh, awesome. um, real quickly, can you talk about the music? Uh, I, I got, and, and maybe just because of Bushwick, I got a uh, an Aesop Rock vibe. There was even an Aesop uh, song in the movie. So uh, as Brian and I were talking there was some breathing in um, in the score that was kind of in tandem with uh, you know the action and it had its own beat and it was just very very gritty and guttural. Um, did you use Bushwick as a temp track? And it almost kind of reminds me of like what Daniel Pemberton did for something like King Arthur. What kind of discussions did you have developing this? Oh uh, yeah, that's cool that you you noticed. Yeah, Nima, our composer, was really came in and saved the day. Um, we had a lot of trouble with this score in terms of uh, just the temp track. We, we didn't know where to go. We were trying things. Um, that was one thing that I think as directors, we had a, a kind of a vision for how it should sound. And as we were editing it, it just didn't, it didn't, it wasn't gelling. Um, so uh, in some of the early cuts, we were really having trouble finding that tone and uh, the right pacing and all these things that the score really enhances. Um, so we were lucky once we actually did start working with uh, Nima, we were able to give him insane contradictory direction, like make it funny, but uh, violent. Uh, and it's like, in our minds, we don't know how you can reconcile direction like that, um, but give Nima props that he would come back with, with 
with stuff that needed little to almost no adjustments um, because it did it utilize. <coughs> oh, excuse me again. Use, <laughs> thanks. It uh, utilized, uh, yeah, like Becky's breathing. It utilized toys. He made a percussion out of elements that were found around the house. All these really unique sounds that you know just took it outside of the the normal uh, score of a movie and and made it so unique um, while doing those two you know doing contradictory things with the tone and and really most importantly keeping the pace moving and really keeping it um uh, uh kind of upbeat in a way you know it's like how do you how do you have sh- how do you show characters loved ones getting killed but keep the pace of the movie going and and it kind of retains some fun um so th- those are the challenges that he had and then in terms of uh that Aesop Rock song, we were just really struggling there too, because we were running out of budget. And, you know, the last thing we wanted to do was throw in some lame uh, uh, stock music there, um, because it is a kind of a pivotal moment where uh, Becky is, uh, you know, kind of mad at her dad and it had to be intense and emotional um, as we, as we roll up to the, the cottage. And, um, you know, we were just struggling and we just reached out to Aesop and he's just so generous that he, you know, he just was like, yeah, man, just choose a song. Let me know. And uh, <laughs> so we, we, we tried a few songs and we found this one that we loved and, and kind of fit perfect and was just so cool. And um, yeah, he, he really he just pretty much, you know, he just pretty much gave it to us. It's just like awesome. And, and a nice little connection to Bushwick is that 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 song is actually the last song that's played in the credits of Bushwick. Um, it, cause it's, uh, so we have a little bit of a, a touchstone between the two films. Oh, very nice. Very nice. Yeah. The score really just, uh, it, it hit home and even little, little bits of humming really just made it unique and, uh, really drove the movie. So, and it got you breathing fast with the, in the <laughs> tenseness in the situation. It's like, Oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I like it. Um, one of my last questions before we are the last question before we uh, wrap this up because you guys got to go because I could talk to you for hours. Um, it's a fun question. So since you're uh, big cinematic purveyors of movies, you love you love the love the love it. Um, what are some scenes, certain scenes from films that always stick with you that you just love that inspire that you wake up and you're just like, Oh, I love that scene in that movie. Specific I mean, I'll, I'll go first, John, cause yeah. I know the, I mean, yeah, yeah. the one that, the one that, uh, I think, I think I feel like there's two, there's two scenes that stick out for me and it's in two of my favorite movies. Uh, one is apocalypse now with, um, the scene where, uh, where, uh, Martin Sheen comes in and, and meets Kurt for the first time. And, and that um, it, it, it's just one of the most powerful introductions of a man that we haven't seen for the whole film, and uh, and how they interact, and the 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 uh, the way those, those two ca- uh, actors are interacting, and then you know the stories behind of making of the film. It just it was just unbelievable. And then uh, the scene of Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, where they're about to jump into the uh, to the river for the first time, and and we find out that uh, that uh, Butch. And that a Sundance can't can't swim, and the Butch can't swim, and that they don't want to do that, and they kind of jump off. So it's it's kind of a great kind of like really funny scene in the middle of all these two badass guys who are supposed to be the you know the the, the biggest outlaws of the West, and they can't swim. Um, so yeah, it was those are the two scenes that stick out to me as uh, as as some of the best in, in cinema. How about you, John? 
Yeah, I, I would definitely have to go back to um, let the corpses tan. Um, I, you know, I just love some of the some of the things they do with the camera and the pacing and the editing that they do is is just like nothing I've ever seen before. And you know, it, it's uh, it's definitely I can't recommend that one enough. I, I think um, if you dig a little deeper, uh, you, I guess they're part of this movement called Giallo. Uh, which goes all the way back to um, Bay of Blood, and there are there is some moments in in Bay of Blood. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie from uh, Mario Bava. From, yeah, from I the, love Mario the Italian. Yes, yes, yes. From the seventies, yeah, and I, I think that there's there there's um in both of those movies there's there's just the interaction of all the elements of filmmaking that I just love so much um, because there's like a there's like a progression to the to the way that the camera interacts with the actors and the sound and everything kind of comes together and tells a story in a unique visual way that is is really unlike anything else it's um it's it's pretty pretty profound um so i would say kind of elements from both of both of those films are are some of my favorite those are great 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 uh, thank you guys for being on the show. We enjoyed having you. We hope to have you back again very soon. You want to tell everybody, all the listeners, where to find Becky? Yeah, definitely take a look around your uh, your local drive and see if it's playing there over the next weekend or so. Because um, I think that would, like you're saying, be just the best experience. It would be it would be a it's just a perfect drive-in movie. Um, uh, if you can't do that, definitely look on VOD. It's in uh, going to be on all the typical VOD places like iTunes and Amazon and Vudu and anywhere else you can rent rent on uh, rent on your your devices. Excellent, excellent. And just one last before we part: Is the y'all cooking up anything else on the uh, in the future? Oh yeah, we got some some films brewing. And if you like Cooties Bushwick and Becky. Um, and that level of intense violence, I think you'll like some of the some of the other things we got going on. It's it's kind of taking it to another level. Sweet deal. I like it. Awesome. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having us.